Amen. We got a handful of announcements. Go ahead and come on up, guys. I'll just hand, hand it over. Good morning. Um, well, I'm really excited. Uh, the next two events that uh, I get to announce, we love our brothers so much. We do. We thank you for leading us. But this Wednesday, we get to have our women's midweek here at the building at 730. And then April 6th, we're going to have um, our Women's Day that morning at 10 a.m. also here at the building. The theme is rest, and it's based on Psalm 50. 62, excuse me, and um, we're just going to focus on being women who really rest in God and focusing that morning on a time of finding rest in Him and doing different things um, to really focus on resting and relaxing, um, which maybe you're like me, that's what I need right now. So, um, but this is a time that we, I want to encourage you to really invite your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, just any women. I think it's really a topic that we can all really learn from and hopefully just really build relationships. So next Sunday, oh yeah, there's, um, next Sunday we'll start signups and that will be at the union. I know we're not here, um, but we'll have a sign up there. The cost is $5, so not super expensive. Um, but yeah, we'll have little invites as well that if you need to hand them out at the grocery store, you know, to neighbors, as well as I posted on the women's group me the link that you can just shoot over to your friends too. So. Good morning, church. Nice to see the sun's finally out. <laughs> so I help out a little bit with the teen ministry, and we're going we're putting together an event that is called Parents Night Out, and so we're going to try to relieve all you parents. Um, from your kids for an evening at least. <laughs> so on uh, March Saturday, March 30th, we are going to have um, from 5 o'clock to 8.30, we're going to open up the building here to watch all your guys' kids um, and have fun with them, play some games, and uh, just to give uh, our teens an opportunity to serve you guys. 8.30 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> So I have a lot more details that I can share with you and you know take Willie's time. But <laughs> um, if you have questions or if you are interested, please get a hold of me or Malvin, Stephanie, Casey, and they can direct you to me and I can <laughs> I can I can forward you an email or just give you all the information that you would like. Um, now, we probably will have a sign-up sheet available at the union as well next week. Um, so we're hoping to kind of RSVP as much as we can um, beforehand. So anyway. Good morning. I have an announcement that's even more exciting than Katie's. I'm not going to say it. But anyway... Uh, uh, next week we're having a work party. <laughs> next, Saturday, <laughs> next Saturday from uh, 10 to 4, uh, we're going to have a work party here, men and women, we need as many people as possible, we need people to sacrifice, you don't have to stay all day, but if you, for whatever hours you can come, that's great. We need some shovels, uh, power drills, 
Uh, if you have extra work gloves that people can share, and if you have lawn seeds, spreaders, that would be great. Uh, we really want to have a spring uh, cleaning event here to make the church inside and outside look great. Anyway, next week, uh, we need to carpool as much as possible as well because we're going to pile up some stuff in the parking lot. So whoever can carpool, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Man, Rich, Jackson, thank you guys so much for organizing that, taking care of our building here. Um, Okay, I also, the, the Mann family would like to just say a special thank you for all their prayers. Their son recently had a successful surgery and he's recovering, so let's continue to pray for them, and they just wanted to, to say a thank you. And uh, last announcement I have is next week is going to be our joint service, okay? It's going to be, same thing, at the Union, starting at 1030 in the Woodruff Auditorium, and that's going to be with our brothers and sisters in Kansas City, and uh, we're really looking forward to that time, I believe. That uh, there's a, a guy who runs an orphanage in Haiti called Oasis, and there's several of the students here that have gone over there to be a part of that and really see that. He's going to be in town, and he's going to do a little bit of sharing about that. I think we're also going to have a, an offering about that, and uh, it's going to be a great, great time to worship with our brothers and sisters in Kansas City. So 1030 at the Union in the Woodruff Auditorium. Amen? Amen. Okay, so uh, I'm excited for... The new series that uh, I'm going to be preaching on, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about Moses. And we're going to be studying through uh, a lot of the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at the life of Moses and their journey out of Egypt, and uh, really taking away a lot of life lessons. So I'm really excited about that. The downside is I'm going to start preaching that when summer comes, okay? So uh, between now and then, we're going to have a lot of uh, different speakers coming in town, different people here that are going to be preaching. So that's, uh, you know, you, get to look forward to hearing some people other than me, but uh, looking forward to that and looking forward to our series uh, coming up. But today's message, uh, you know, you know, when you, you watch a movie and it kind of, there's a gap and it says, uh, you know, five years later, six years later, and then you're watching the same movie, but it kind of jumps ahead. That's kind of what the book of Exodus, Exodus is to Genesis. You know, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, but it's kind of a few centuries later. So it's kind of the same story. It's kind of the same movie, but it's a couple centuries ahead of time. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to fill in that gap a little bit at the end of Genesis leading up to the birth of Moses. And I think there's a few lessons that we can take away. And so uh, the title of my lesson today is The Entrance. It's a prequel to the Exodus. Uh, Exodus is such a powerful book. It's filled with all sorts of life lessons. It reveals so much about who God is and our relationship with Him. But before you can really appreciate the Exodus, you kind of have to understand how everybody got to Egypt in the first place and what was taking place then. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at a couple aspects that I think are really important for us in life. Number one, that's to trust God. And number two, that's to fear God. Amen? So before, before we get into a lot of that, just a little bit of background. Okay, Genesis ends with a focus on a character named Joseph. A lot of you guys know who Joseph is. You've heard of him. You're familiar with his story. But Joseph's grandfather was Isaac. Remember the, the kid that was almost sacrificed by his dad? That was Joseph's grandpa. Okay, 
So Joseph, in essence, was the great-grandson of Abraham. God made a vow with Abraham, made a covenant, because Abraham was so faithful. He said, Abraham, even though you're old, I'm going to give you a family that's as numerous as the stars in the sky. It'll be a great nation. And he, he gave him and promised that they would settle in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And all this came to, came to be. Okay, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Okay, Jacob was kind of a sneaky, deceitful, kind of a, I don't know, just kind of a slimy kind of guy. But God, God wrestled with him. God transformed him. And he gave them a new name. And that's, that was Israel. And so Jacob's name was Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. These became eventually the 12 tribes of Israel. But uh, of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. And favoritism is not good in a family. And this also was not good. But all the other brothers, because of this, Sam's just laughing, so I'm not sure which one of her kids is the favorite. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. But... Uh, um, because of this, all, all the 11 siblings really despised Joseph. And so one day they kind of attack him, they ambush him, they throw him in, into slavery. They sell him to a caravan that's on the way to Egypt. And then Joseph's story from this point on is just this incredible roller coaster where God brought someone from the absolute pits and rose him up. All the way to being the right hand of Pharaoh. And Joseph, time and time again, showed his brilliance. Until Pharaoh finally took notice. And he was promoted to prime minister of Egypt. Which at the time was the most powerful nation in the world. So you got to think about that. A young Jewish boy that was hated by his brothers. That was sold into slavery. Was basically running. The most powerful nation in the world. And it was perfect timing too. Because shortly after he was appointed. This great famine. Went throughout the land. And Joseph. God had given him the wisdom. He kind of put a plan in place. And because of this family, famine. Joseph's family. Remember Jacob. All his uh, Israel. All his sons. They were in Canaan. They were in the promised land. Because of the famine. They came up to Egypt asking for help. And there was this beautiful family reunion. So many tears, so much uh, shock, so much forgiveness. Just an incredible story. I encourage you to read it. And so Joseph asks his brothers, guys, why don't you move to Egypt? Leave Canaan, leave the promised land, and come move to Egypt, and we'll take care of you. And so he asks Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, can my family move to Egypt? Pharaoh not only says yes. He says that they can move into the nicest area of Egypt. They'll be given surplus of grain. Okay? And they get to work directly for Pharaoh himself, keeping his livestock. So God sets this up perfectly. And for 70 years, 71 years, the family of Israel grew from a small little family to a nation. So it's, it's interesting because... They must have had a great period of decades of peace and relaxation because 
apparently all they did for 70 years was have lots of children. All right? So much so to, like I said, a little family grew large enough to be considered a nation of people. What a crazy story. Right? God promised Abraham, this old guy, that he was going to have a huge family. He gives him this promised land. Abraham has a family. They settle in the promised land. Then there's a famine. They have to leave the promised land. One of the sons is sold into slavery, but then becomes the prime minister of Egypt, who then saves his family and brings them to Egypt. So many ups and downs, right? And such is life. But this is where the tide starts to turn. After 71 years of peace and relaxation, as the Hebrew nation continued to explode, the Egyptians started to view the Hebrews with despise. They, they, they could not stand them. And here's a little insight into what happened. In Genesis 46, you can go ahead and turn over there. In verse 33, it says, when Pharaoh calls you in. So this is Joseph giving, he's giving a tip to his family. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what's your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. This is a really, really small but really important uh, fact. Okay, the Egyptians had risen to such a level of sophistication. Every single citizen, every person in Egypt was expected to have this level of education and wisdom and sophistication in their life. And so when Joseph's family, when the family of Israel moves into Egypt, he says, hey guys, if you want to last around here, when Pharaoh asks you what your job is, don't tell him you're a shepherd because shepherds are despised by the Egyptians. Tell them that you tend livestock. It's really interesting because even when you study Egyptian hieroglyphics, shepherds are portrayed as these scrawny, insignificant, lowly figures. Shepherds were the lowest of the low. And because the Egyptian society had grown so sophisticated, they could not tolerate having thousands of shepherds watering down the sophisticated culture of Egypt. So Joseph tells them, he warns them, guys, you can't call yourself shepherds. You have to say that you tend livestock. Because tending to livestock was not the same as being a shepherd. That was actually an important, integral part of their society. But somewhere along the way, they either forgot this or they didn't pay heed to this warning. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 8. Apparently, they just continued to have babies like crazy. So much so that the Egyptians and Pharaoh decided that we've got we've to put an end to this. Or else they're going to grow and be, there's going to be more Jews in Egypt than Egyptians. And there could start a revolt or a split. And so in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Okay, so Joseph it was gone now. New guys in charge. This dude apparently knew nothing of Joseph or didn't care. 
A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, and they could fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pitom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Gosh, right? What just happened? This story is just so up and down. They're in Canaan. Their family's growing. There's a famine. They move to Egypt. They're saved. Their family members, the prime minister, then they, they're despised. Now, all of a sudden, they're being terribly oppressed in slavery, and they're hated by all the Egyptians. And when you look at stories like this that are so up and down and all over the place, there are just so many questions. It brings so many questions. You know, when I think of this story, I'm like, God, if, if you wanted them to be in Canaan, the promised land, and they were already in Canaan, why not just work it out so that they could have just grown into a nation there? Why didn't you just make it all work? Did God cause the famine to force them to move to Egypt? Or did the famine just happen? And God nudged them to Egypt to save them? Or was God just, you know, just completely kind of uninvolved and this is just how things played out? Did God put Joseph into slavery? Or did through his slavery he ended up just raising Joseph up? Who knows? God, why did it take 400 years before the exodus? Why couldn't you have sped that process up a little bit? You know, when it comes to life, there's kind of this element where you just have to buckle up and trust God. And honestly, I hate that answer, right? It's like when you're going to someone and, and you're, you're needing help and they just kind of say, bro, I don't know, let's pray, right? It's like, I know that that's the right answer. I know that that's good, but that does not help me in my situation. And that's kind of like this. <laughs> There's an element to life. Life can be so up and down and all over the place. There's this element where you just kind of have to buckle in and trust God. And as unhelpful of an answer as that is sometimes, a lot of the times we don't have the full picture. And when we try to control everything and make sense of everything and draw conclusions with such a limited perspective, more times than not, we're just going to end up frustrated and even more confused. You know, there's a story here that was read at the marriage retreat. And, uh, you know, a few of us were there, but several of us weren't. So I want to go ahead and read it again. It's a story about this old man that had this beautiful white horse. And this man, he lived in this tiny village and, and he was poor, but everybody in the village envied him because of this beautiful horse. Even the king wanted this horse. And so constantly people were going to him, asking him, hey, would you sell this horse? 
How much do you want for him? They were offering him all kinds of money for this horse. But the old man refused. The horse was too valuable to him. It was much more than just a possession for him to sell in return for money. And so he turned down all these offers. One morning, though, he walked outside and the horse was gone. It had left the stable. And all the village came to him and they said, you old fool. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you that you would be robbed. You are so poor. How could you ever protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better if you had sold this horse. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you have been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. For that's all that we know. The rest is just judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? The people contested, don't make us out to be fools, right? And they're like, dude, you are clearly cursed. But after 15 days, the horse returned. It hadn't been stolen. In fact, the horse had run into the forest and when it returned, it didn't just come back by itself, but it brought back 12 other beautiful horses with it. Once again, the village rushed to the old man. Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, once again, you've gone too far. Say only that the horse is back and that it's brought a dozen more with him. The rest is judgment. How can we know if this is a blessing or a curse? We see only a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? The old man had a son. It was his only son. And the young man began to work with these horses to break them in. And after a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke his, both of his legs and couldn't help. And so once again, what did the villagers do? They rushed to the old man. You were right. You proved you were right. These dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken both of his legs, and now you in your old age have no one to help you. You are poorer now than ever. And the old man spoke again. You people are so obsessed with coming to conclusions with only a part of the picture. Don't go so far. Say only that my son has broken his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment of the story. Life comes in fragments. It just so happened that a few weeks later, the country engaged in war against the neighboring countries. And all the young men in the village were required to join the armies. Only the son of this old man was excluded because of his injury. And once again... The people gathered around the old man, crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. You were right, old man. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke again. It's impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. The one who is wise enough to know is only God who knows the full story. You know, there's this element, guys, there's this element to life where we don't always see the big picture. 
Life comes in fragments. And sometimes we just have to buckle up and trust God. But this is one thing we can hold on to. God never, ever, ever forgets his promises. Mm -hmm. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. This is God speaking to Abraham. And he said, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nations that they serve, and afterwards they will come out <coughs> with great possessions. And again in Genesis 50, verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God never, ever, ever forgets his promises. It may not happen when we'd like. It may happen 400 years later than we expect. It may not happen in the way we expect, but God always, 100% of the time, follows through with what he says he will. And he is always working for the good of his people. You know, something that's really encouraging to do for a quiet time series is to study through the Bible and look at all the different promises that God's made. He's made promises to strengthen us. He's made promises that he will always be there for us and not abandon us. He's made promises... That he hears and answers our prayers in accordance with his will. He's made promises that he knows what we need and he'll provide for us. He's made promises about forgiving our sins and salvation. And to the Israelites, God promised that he would deliver them. And sure enough, over time, God handpicked and raised up the perfect God that was equipped in a unique way to deal with both Pharaoh and the Jews. And that man was Moses. And God followed through with his promise. They did leave Egypt. They did end up in the land of Canaan. It just didn't happen the way that they expected. However, there is no Moses without these two unsung heroes that I want to look at. And we're going to talk a little bit about fearing God. Because guys, the reality is in life. There is no deliverance without a fear of God. In Exodus chapter 1, in verse 6, we've read some of this already. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Their fertility was the one good thing going on in life, honestly. They multiplied greatly. They increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king... To whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave this country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pitom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But they were, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread them and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then the king of Egypt 
said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Things just continued to get worse. The more the Israelites grew, the more the Egyptians tried to destroy them with oppression and exhaustion. And the more the Egyptians tried to do that, the more the Israelites kept growing. And so as the Israelite nation grew, so did the despise of the Egyptians. So much so that they decided to put in effect a, just the worst plan you could possibly think of. If we can't get rid of all these Jews... We'll go kill all the boys when they're born. And I'm going to pull these head midwives in. And I'm going to tell them when you're delivering the baby, if you see that it's a boy, kill him. And so if we can't get rid of them through exhaustion and murder, well, then I guess we'll just make it to where they won't be able to conceive. And in a couple generations, they'll all die out. Just, just a terrible, terrible plan. Look in verse 17, though. The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And there's a little humor in their response here in verse 19. The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before we can even arrive. <laughs> So God, <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Such unsung heroes in the story of the Exodus, because without these two women that feared God... More than any person, there is no Moses. There is no deliverance. Whether that's in your personal relationship with God, a relationship with someone else, deliverance from a sin, deliverance from a situation, there is no true deliverance without first fearing God. And fearing God is a necessary and underrated expectation for his people. It's a healthy fear. It's a fear that comes out of the highest reverence and respect for who God is. It's to stand in complete and utter awe of God and to therefore dread disobeying Him. Fearing God comes from remembering what God has done and remembering what God can do. You know, some of us, you, you can think back to your childhood, and you can kind of understand that healthy level of fearing God, right? Maybe it was your mom, or maybe it was your dad, but some of us had parents that are able to strike that healthy fear of God in you, right? Um, you may treat your teachers this way, you may treat your friends this way, you may treat your friends' parents this way, or your neighbors this way, but there is just a line that you don't cross with, you, you know, whoever it is that's coming to mind, right? For me, there's my dad. There's just a line. There's just certain lines that you don't even, you just know not to go near, right? <laughs> there are two main lines 
that uh, you just don't cross with my dad. The first is messing with him or waking him up when he's sleeping. <laughs> you just, you just don't, right? And sometimes, you know, my dad worked really hard to take care of us as a family, and uh, he'd come home from work, and then sometimes he would fall into a deep sleep right before dinner. And so we'd, one of us would have to go wake him up. And it's just like, let's just eat, right? Let's just eat without him, and he'll, he'll wake up and eat at some, right? You just, it's kind of like that thing, thing in Aladdin, that if you mess with his slumber, he's just going to come alive and swallow you, right? And that will be the end of you. That was with my dad. The other line you didn't cross, I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming he's not watching the live stream. The, is anything with passing gas? Around my dad, you didn't, you just didn't go there. Which, in a house of all, in a house of all boys, that's all you do. Right? That's all you joke about. That's all you talk about. That's just what you do in car rides. In, most of your memories, if you grow up in a house of the boys, most of your, it's just, it's just funny. I don't know. But growing up. I, to this day, I, I don't think I've ever heard heard my dad pass gas. And sometimes we'd be driving in the car. I recognize this smell, but not entirely. That, and then the window just rolls down. Silence. The window just rolls down. And if you try to, oh, dad, you just then you roll your window down. So it's just so loud in the car that you just, and that was it. You just. You just don't don't say anything. And I remember there was this one time. I don't remember where we were at, but this vivid memory. We were, we were I was a kid. We were in this. We were in tight enclosed place as a family. And I was very loud as a kid. I was very 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 loud. And I remember just same thing. Just oh. And I looked at my brother, kind of like dude. And he's like, that wasn't me. But I know it was within the family, right? <laughs> And I looked at my dad, and I, what was, I was about to say was, oh, dad, what did you, and he just, he just, I remember this stare, like it was yesterday, and it was just this, I will, if, this will be your last sentence. <laughs> and then we just, like, you just, you, there's just the line that you don't cross, because if you do, it could mean the end, right? And. There's a similarity to that with a healthy level of fearing God. There's just there are lines that you just don't cross. Not because you're scared that he'll hate you, but out of the utmost respect, out of the knowledge of what he has done and therefore what he is still capable of doing, there are just lines that you don't cross. Amen. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, as a church, if we've gotten comfortable crossing some of these lines. And I wonder if we are more afraid of crossing these lines with our bosses or with our spouses or with our children or with our children's coaches, or our children's teachers. I wonder if we become more afraid of crossing certain lines with those people and we've grown very casual with crossing lines with God. Or maybe we don't even have lines that just become kind of blurry and distant. Do you have an appropriate level of fearing God? Fearing God comes from remembering what God has done and what God can do. We serve the God that flooded the entire world to rid it of sin. 
and spared only one family. We serve a God whose power completely parted the Red Sea. We serve a God that opened up and swallowed people into the earth. We serve a God that knows all the stars by name, and he knows the amounts of hairs we each have on our heads. We serve a God that has forgiven us all of our sins and has risen people from the dead. We serve a God that struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying. Does your life show that you fear, respect, stand in awe, appreciate God? And the next question we have to ask ourselves is, do you fear men more than you fear God? It's very clear in this story that these two women feared God more than anything, more than anyone. Because they knew who God was, they knew what God has done and what he could do. And therefore, they were more afraid of disobeying God than disobeying the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, for us and for the Israelites, there is no deliverance without a fear of God. And God is searching. He's searching even today for men and women that have more of a reverence and respect and a fear of him than anybody else in this world. And those are the men and women, men and women that fear disobeying God more than anybody else. Those are the men and women he's looking for to use to raise up his people, to deliver his people. Brothers and sisters, do you fear God? As we conclude, guys, life, life takes us all over the place. It really boils down to trusting God and fearing God. Sometimes we just have to buckle up and trust God. And trust that we don't have the full picture, but God does. And trust that he never, ever, ever forgets his promises. And he always follows through with what he says he'll do. And we have to fear God. We have to, to make sure that no matter what situation we find ourselves, we fear God more than any person or group of people in the world. And our obedience to God and his will and his way is the biggest indicator that we fear him. So as we go through life, God, try, guys, try to hold on to those two things. Trust God and fear God. Remember, next week we're going to be worshiping together with our brothers and sisters in Kansas City. This is going to be followed by a few weeks of other people preaching. And then I am excited to eventually get into the story of Moses. It's going to be titled Moses, Wandering and Wondering. So I look forward to going through Exodus. And I would encourage you guys to go ahead and maybe even start in your quiet times reading through Genesis and Exodus to, in preparation for that. Amen? Let's go to God in prayer and we'll close with one more song. Father, uh, we come before you, God, grateful for you. But God, I just pray that as a church, God, we would have more of a healthy fear, honor, respect, appreciation for you, God. That we would be more afraid of you than, than anyone else. And God, that we would show it by the way that we live. God, we know that obedience to you and your will and your way is the greatest indicator of a fear of you. And God, I pray that we can trust you. That no matter where life takes us, all the ups and downs, all the craziness that is life, God, that we can buckle up. 
That we would realize that we, we don't always have the full picture, but that we would trust in you. That we would trust that you do have the full picture. And we may have so many different questions and things that just don't make sense in life. But God, we can trust that you know what's going on and that you never, ever, ever forget your promises. I pray that we can hang in there, that we can buckle up. And even if those promises take 400 years to fulfill, that we would trust you. God, we love you and we're thankful for you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Close out with one more song.